This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. There we were in, in these, you know, mud brick homes on the side of a cliff, deep in the Himalaya with nothing on our schedule and nothing but the two duffel bags we came with for the foreseeable future. And that was, for me, an incredible feeling. Hi guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and I am so excited to have fellow writer Bruce Kirkby on the show today. He's a great guy, a great storyteller, and we're about to have a lot of fun. Are you ready? Let's go. Bruce has documented some incredible journeys in his career, from crossing the scorching sands of Arabia's empty quarter on camel to sea kayaking among the ice flows in Greenland. He's written several best-selling books, including the one we're talking about today. It's called Blue Sky Kingdom, and it would be a great present for any adventure-obsessed parent like me. And you can buy it all in the usual places, online or at your local bookstore. Always good to try and support them too. Or you can head over to brucekirkby.com. That's K-R-K-B-Y.com to find out more about all his books, check out his photos and more. And you can also find him on Instagram at Bruce Kirkby. Great page. I'll put all those links in the show notes too. And remember, if you like this show, please help us spread the word. We are building a community of people who love adventure and want to help spread our message of love for the outdoors, living life to the full, and experiencing the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours. If that sounds like you, and maybe you have a friend or two that you think would like it, then please let them know, post about it, whatever you can do. It makes a huge difference and it's a great way to support the show. Please also connect with us on socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast. You can also sign up for the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can support the show by buying me a pint for less than the cost of a single beer. You can become a patron of the show and get ad-free episodes and lots of other stuff. Thanks so much, guys. Whatever you can do, it really does help a ton. But for now... It's time to begin our journey, and it starts with Bruce and his wife, Christine, someone equally as adventurous as him, raising their two sons, Bodie and Taj. But even as adventurous as they are, they also fell victim to the easy distraction of modern-day technology and endless scrolling. And one day, somewhere between travel, sitting at the breakfast table over a bowl of cereal, Bruce had a wake-up call. I refer to that moment as a Cheerio moment. And I think every young parent goes through this type of uh, realization when their child is the most important thing to them, 
but the child is talking to them or, or reaching out to them and they realize they're paying attention to something completely inane, like Twitter or just the mundane details of daily life. And I think that moment was jarring for me because Bodhi, because of his place on the spectrum, really called me out. He said, did you hear anything I just said? And I realized I hadn't heard anything. And I think we can live through a few of those moments and then suddenly we have one and we may think, I've got to do better. There's more to me. There's I, I can offer more as a father. Luckily, a growing awareness, but a growing challenge in the modern world that there are so many demands on our attention. Time's the most precious thing that we have. And we are called to spend it on things other than the things that really matter in our lives to our children, our family, our community. And I also was also, I should say, very aware that it was an incredibly ephemeral time in my children's life, that they were young and seeking my attention, which is often hard for young parents, but I knew the greatest gift I could give them and my wife could give them was bestowing as much of our attention as we could on them. Attention, he quotes the French philosopher Simone Weil in the book, is the rarest form of generosity. But after something like that Cheerios moment, most parents would turn off their phones for a bit and vow to do better at reconnecting with their kids for a while. Some might have even decided to go on a family vacation. In fact, their friends and family suggested a week-long cruise to Mexico. But Bruce and Christine had something much, much bigger in mind. The solution, <laughs> the treatment that my wife and I came up with, the idea of moving to a monastery in the Himalayas was a fairly extreme reaction to that. But I think a Buddhist monastery resonated or had some appeal for the yin and yang of Christine and me. Uh, when we met, she was and remains incredibly spiritual person, open to all types of things like mercury and retrograde and different crystals. And, and I was an engineering physicist, and so I was very skeptical. And we had this area of overlap almost, like a Venn diagram, because I had spent time in the Himalayas, I spent time with Sherpa teammates, and was deeply respectful of not just their generosity of spirit and their easy ways, but with somehow the way Buddhism didn't feel like it was pushed on you, that it was as open to you as you were to it. And so we kind of batted around this idea that maybe we could take the boys to live at a monastery. And literally within a few days, we said, yeah, that, that thing that was gonna be someday should be this summer, we should just do it. One of the big challenges was trying to figure out how we could do it in an authentic and engaged way where we were supporting the monastery, not just show up like, you know, kind of tourists or pay, you know, pay a fee to live in a room in a guest house on the side. Uh, and that was a bit of a challenge. And so we, th I, I have many contacts who spent a lot of time in the Himalayas in different parts and by fluke, my very best friend had been in Zanskar during a heavy snowstorm and had been recruited to shovel off the flat roofs of the monastery. And they'd become great friends at the time, he and his wife with Lama Wangal, who was the head Lama of the monastery then. And so we didn't know how to reach Lama Wangal. We eventually found a nephew of his who was studying in, in Southern India. And I sent him an email explaining what we'd like to do and could we stay? And he said, most generously, problems are none. And so that was all we had. That single ambiguous line was all they had to go on. They weren't even sure anyone would remember they were coming by the time they got there, but they decided to take the risk and they began to chart a path to the monastery that would be an incredible adventure in itself. 
I'm not entirely sure where the overland idea came from, but I do think something felt slightly disingenuous about trying to escape frenetic life and busyness by jumping on a plane and flying to the Himalaya. And I think many people can resonate with that feeling if they've traveled of how bizarre it is to jump on a plane in America or in Europe, you know, and you're in a glassy departures lounge and, and you have an in-flight meal and sleep and maybe watch a movie and then all of a sudden you're in Asia or South America or in Buenos Aires and it's so abrupt. And so we decided to go overland in the beginning of that trip. Uh, we tried to stitch together a route basically around the world. But like anything immense, the first steps are very normal. And my family's very used to canoe expeditions and paddling. So we just got in our truck and drove to the river and put the canoes in. And it was such a bizarre feeling because I knew so much lay down this road. We were gonna trace this path over really the surface of the earth to the other side of the earth. But right now, everything was normal. We could see we were still, in a way, slightly tethered to home. We knew it was there. I don't think my boys were aware, but for Christine and I, wow, what an incredible feeling of opening a possibility before you. They traveled in their canoe along the forested coast, camping under the stars and listening to wolves howl in the distance each night. After five days, they reached a small lumber town, hopped on a train and headed to Vancouver, where they'd meet the first big challenge of their trip, a Pacific Ocean crossing. The family vacation went off the rails when we boarded this 77,000 ton container ship that was headed for Busan, South Korea. And that ended up being a 17 day sea voyage. For me, it was absolutely glorious. It was like a cruise ship without people. <laughs> you know, it's an enormous ship and, and you really become friends with the crew where there was 18 Filipinos and 18 Europeans running that ship. I think the thing that stays with me the most on that trip was the contrast between the enormity of the ocean and the extreme fragility and tininess, specifically of my two young sons, ourselves as well. The captain told us, if you fall off the ship, it'll take me seven minutes to st stop it and turn it around. By that point, I would not be able to see a life raft with a telescope and you'll never be found. A and so there, there, there is that sense of standing on the precipice of enormity, I suppose, that you get when you stand on the edge of a cliff. And it's both alluring and intimidating. And so I had a great sense of respect for the ocean as we traveled across it. And we'd see things, we'd see whales. You saw changing colors of blue and just this ship steaming and steaming and steaming onwards and nothing changing, which is rare and refreshing in its own sense. But it was once we landed in Busan and then started this overland journey that really we started to feel you know, the presence of different cultures and ways of being and languages and foods and all the things that go on with all the kind of sense of discovery you have as you make your way with nearly not any itinerary across Asia. He writes, outside the cab windows, we glimpsed a world of cement, plastic and glass lit by neon and peopled by citizenry glued to smartphones and selfie sticks. Rows of relentlessly uniform apartments sprouted from green hillsides like mushrooms. In the book, Bruce talks about traveling in a way that adapts to the unfamiliar, rather than instinctively bending the unfamiliar towards ourselves. And they wanted to instill that same mindset in their boys. But thanks to their boys, they got even more than that too. 
We landed in Korea and, you know, there are markets, burgeoning markets, and they smell of fish and sharks and eels. And, you know, you're seeing extraordinary things. We watched the eels being skinned alive and the other the boys were shocked. Um, but, our, you know, it was really neat for me to be back in Asia with my two boys because they see it through curious eyes and they're just legitimately, everything's been new to them in their life up to this point. And so it was, you know, absolutely touching, feeling, sensing, exploring wonderland. And so it became extraordinarily exciting for Christine and I, because I think we saw Asia as much through our memories and reminiscences, but also through our children's eyes now. And so we saw it in a new light. You know, children, are an icebreaker and what they uh, I think represent is a commonality and experience. You show up with children and I don't want to say it's a shared struggle, but it's, it is a shared struggle. And instantly women will come to help Christine. Instantly people say, you can't be sitting here waiting for the bus for four hours. You got to come to my house and have dinner. And you really are afforded an extraordinary window into the culture and, and it's a bridge builder and an icebreaker and, and so many amazing things because I think it's just such a clear representation of our shared humanity. From there, they continued on taking a train from Busan to Seoul and riding a ferry from Seoul to Qingdao, a sparkling seaside city on China's Yellow Sea. And then another train sped them through the industrialized countryside to Beijing and then onwards to the western grasslands of China, where they spent a week acclimatizing to the air nearly two miles above sea level. Finally, they were ready to cross the Tibetan plateau into India. The first critical element in the journey was getting across the Pacific and the second critical part was getting through Tibet and onto the Friendship Highway, because literally that represents the only overland route to the subcontinent, unless we went all the way down around Thailand and perhaps into Sri Lanka and up into India that way. So we made our way through China slowly. And the real challenge of that trip was the high altitude. And there's a new train that's been built, but the challenge of the train is it's pressurized. They have nasal cannulas that deliver oxygen but it drags you from Beijing to almost 6,000 meters in the space of two days. There were people wandering around the train, vomiting, delirious, you know, unconscious. It was unbelievable. And certainly once you're on it, you can't get off. So Christine and I were very careful to be confident that our boys had acclimatized to altitude before we got on. Then you arrive in Lhasa, which is just one of the most incredible cities. It, the port of the palace, you know, the former home of the Dalai Lama, and just a place that is oozing with hope and beauty and spirituality. And I love being in Lhasa, and my boys loved it. We spent some incredible time there and, and in the outlying regions of Tibet. And then from there, we jumped on into a, a Land Rover and basically drove over the Himalaya and down into the subcontinent. Once we crossed the Himalaya and were, were in India, we made our way westwards across India, we traveled by riverboat and trains and all types of things, essentially to the end of the road, all the way up into Manali and the hill stations. In Lhasa, the family wandered through cobblestone alleys and into gold leaf temples, the boys spinning engraved prayer wheels with delight. They traveled onward to Kathmandu, where they visited the iconic Bodhanatha Stupa, a great golden tower painted with enormous eyes rising from a cream-colored dome. 
casting an all-seeing gaze on the orange and green rooftops below. As they continued out of the city and into the countryside, Bruce writes, we followed dirt roads through unruffled villages, past mud-brick homes and shady banyans, where the dusty air was scented by charcoal, paraffin and dung. They visited the Taj Mahal in Agra, spent an incredibly sweltering and itchy night on board a riverboat, and then finally arrived at the next and final leg of their journey. From there, it was a 10-day walk into the Zanskar Valley. And Zanskar, where the monastery is that we were headed for, is really defined by its inaccessibility. There's just no easy way in and no easy way out, and that's why it's really been preserved as this de facto part of old Tibet that hasn't seen the incursions that so many other parts have. We followed really ancient footpaths, you know, carved through the edges of canyons and gorges. We had a team of mules with us and higher and higher we crossed the Shingala Pass and then started descending into this extraordinary, I don't want to use the word Shangri-La because it pulls the wrong idea into people's mind, but this secluded Himalayan paradise that's existed almost unchanged. It's, it's on the, much of this book is about it being on the cusp of change. But we started coming to pastoral villages, just people by 40 or 50, you know, herdsmen and their children. And I knew something extraordinary was lying ahead at this point. There was a sense that when we got to the monastery, that was the last, you know, tie to civilization that we were shedding. There we were in, in these, you know, mud, brick homes on the side of a cliff, deep in the Himalaya, with nothing on our schedule and nothing but the two duffel bags we came with for the foreseeable future. And that was, for me, an incredible feeling. Bruce and his family had just reached the doorstep of the monastery. There was just silence. And we, we actually were locked out of the Lama's home we were staying with, and we didn't know where he went, was. We didn't know what was going on. And we just sat there under a rose bush for three or four hours. And I really, I didn't find that difficult. I love the slow life. I'm used to the slow life. I, I felt, you know, the, the whole way through this experience, I felt appreciative that I had this opportunity. And I realized what a privilege it was to spend that type of time with my boys. I mean, we were sitting there under the rose bush looking at 22,000 foot you know, glaciated Himalayan peaks and listening to the, the sound of conchords. And so I was personally loving all of that. They were happy playing with roses and pretending they're superheroes. But yeah, no, the, the slowness of that life just felt right for me from the very start. Since that email months ago, most generously, problems are none. They hadn't communicated with the monks at all which is kind of mad, right? They tracked their entire family on a 97-day overland journey, literally across the world, got there and were like, hmm, I wonder if they know we're coming. But when Lama Wengal returned home and saw them, he immediately welcomed them with open arms and showed them into their new home, a hobbit hole-like basement room in the Lama's own cramped little house. And it was perfect. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. 
And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. This particular monastery, Karshagampa, that we stayed at, it really is a collection of white mud brick buildings, temples and dormitories that are just barnacled to the edge of a steep cliff about a thousand feet over the valley floor. All these homes are built just by baking mud and a little bit of, you know, grass together into bricks and then they're whitewashed. And so from all outward appearances, it remained entirely unchanged. There was no cement, there was no asphalt. Water came from a pipe that ran up through the hillside to a stream that was glacial fed. There was a tiny bit of power that was spread through the valley, but it was very sporadic. And yeah, we ground our spices by hand with a mortar and pestle and there are no vacuums, you know, we just, it is very dusty in the high Himalaya. We were at about 12 and a half thousand feet. So you're quite high, we were living there and everything's this rock powder that's been ground under the glacier. So yeah, we didn't vacuum it up. We basically our clothes slowly got brown and our hair got brown and we just got dirtier and that was fine. There were about 80 monks or lamas at the Karshagompa that summer, beautifully adorned in maroon robes and traditional pointed orange woolen caps angled skyward. In addition to the adult men, there were 17 young novices in training, a jumble of shrieking, laughing, wrestling, shaved-headed boys as young as seven, and a group of what Bruce called the Lost Boys, teenagers who floated somewhere between novice and monk, sweeping floors and washing prayer bowls, slouching at the outskirts of daily activity. Sounds like teenagers to me. Word spread about the newcomers and they soon became part of the community. Lama Wengal even bestowed upon them a great honor, Tibetan names. The family was now Tashi, Norbu, Angmo, and Morta. Quickly, we developed a routine. The whole monastery would be woken by horns in the morning. We'd go, we're given a spot in the puja hall, the prayer hall, and we'd sit for morning prayers. And eventually, soon they gave us tea, but then they started giving us sampa, which is this barley porridge that they really laugh when they watch tourists try to eat. They laughed and we finally got the hang of it. And so that would usually take most of the morning. We'd share a communal lunch with the monks, and then we'd go down to the village to see if there was anything we could do to help in the way of harvest or gathering barley and alfalfa at this point, and also gathering yak dung, which they burned for the winter ahead. And then at the end of each day, we would teach English and mathematics to those 17 novices, which was one of the central points of our experience and really what we were trying to, in the, the biggest way, give back to the monastery. And as that routine unfolded, we started to get this deeper glimpse, this deeper reality of what was going on in the monastery and in the villages. And I think to me, this is one of the beauties of whether you call it slow travel or taking 
time. Had I gone to Zanskar for one day, I would have seen one thing. Had I gone for one week, I might have seen a few different things. And I've always been attracted in my travels to going for the three months or the three years, if you can, because then you start to see something entirely different. And what he saw worried him as much as it enchanted him. A surging flood of modernity moving slowly but unwaveringly through the valleys of Zanskar, like an unrelenting tide of molasses, bringing with it asphalt, multinational farming, and much more besides. And while Bruce knew that some of these things, like healthcare and education, were welcomed by the local communities and would be beneficial, he also knew that these changes could erase a richly layered culture that had existed for thousands of years. And while the remoteness of the monastery kept it beyond the reach of this tide for now, the valley's other residents had already begun to feel its effects. Lama Wangel took us to help his younger sister and her husband with harvest. Two of their daughters had entered nursing school and weren't there to help. And we were witnessing the disintegration of the family life that they had led for generations. Their parents and their parents before them had owned all the same fields. But we were taken into that house and welcomed. And to be a part of that lifestyle, to get up at dawn and take the yaks and all the sheep and cows out to graze. And then the heavy, heavy physical labor. I realized at one point in one day, I'd moved nine tons of alfalfa up onto their roof from a distant field. They're really heavy loads. And it was humbling to realize that was every day. We were there for a week and their harvest will be probably seven to eight weeks. And they had no children. Their children are all left to go to school. It was it was an elderly man and woman doing it all by themselves. And as soon as that was done, they had to make more bricks to, you know, shore up their house and take the bark off more poplar branches to fix their fences. And, and there's both something obviously romantic from the outside, but deeply satisfying about that level of control of your life. And there was a lot of pride. And so to, to sit around their little yak dunk stove at night and eat some soup and just understand and see the beauty of how proud they were of what they were doing. Yeah, it was, that, that was those are the type of moments that last with me from, from Zanskar. As days stretched into weeks and weeks stretched into months, Bruce and his family made other visits too. They spent time at the farm of Sonam, their Zanskari hiking guide. They woke at dawn to tend to herds of yaks. They witnessed hundreds of bald eagles swooping low over the mountainside. And perhaps most special of all, Lama Wengal presented them with traditional Zanskari robes made of thick purple hand-carded wool, tying pink and magenta sashes around their waists with beaming pride. It was becoming home and slowly working its way into his consciousness too. I would go through that cycle of like, I think I'm there. Oh no, I just thought I'm there, so I'm not. I didn't understand what I was really looking for. And I would get frustrated, which is, you know, completely counterproductive to any attempt at meditating. And so I, I, for the first month or two at Karshagampa, I would go through this cycle. I'd get a little better, a little worse. But I came to understand several things, just in terms of Himalayan Buddhism and meditating. That landscape is such a metaphor for the mind, the clear mind that you're trying to develop. This analogy or metaphor of a blue sky that, you know, you can have storm clouds, but the blue sky is always above it. 
It was during this time that he witnessed something extraordinary. The creation of a sand mandala. Constructed entirely out of brightly colored sands, the monks spent days and days crafting a staggeringly intricate and beautiful piece of art, one grain of sand at a time. According to Buddhist scripture, sand mandalas are designed to transform ordinary minds into enlightened minds. But despite the time and effort to create them, they are not built to last. And that taught Bruce something important. We're on the verge of basically sweeping up this sand, you know, destroying this unbelievable artistic creation to, as a reminder of the impermanence of all things. And then it's put into a copper urn and thrown into the local creek and washed away. But it was during that meditation under a scorching hot sun and there's a dog beside me that's tied to a tire and barking and that all of a sudden I realized that my mind had melted into that landscape. That I, I, for, I was often meditating inside Puja Halls, but now we were outside and, I, and it was just this blue sky and the Himalaya and the idea that this stark, stark landscape and the clarity of it and just this one diamond in the center of the sun that was burning down on us was this incredible metaphor for the meditator's mind and the spotlight of our attention. And boy, I felt such a sense of belonging after three months of living with these men and have sharing the trials and tribulations of that difficult life. I really felt something and I think when you feel when you're meditating, instead of thinking that that's the deepest connection, and that was almost like a door opening and my ability to understand what I was seeking in meditation wasn't a thought, wasn't a way of my mind being, but was actually a way of feeling. And, and as soon as I could connect with the feeling, it, it became easier for me. Zanskar showed to me how important that was in a balanced life and that I had been really caught up in the dogma of, of, of all the structure surrounding it, whether it was, you know, Buddhism or other spirituality that might have felt foreign to me. What's common in all our human lives is this ability to monitor the spotlight of our attention and not let it get dragged everywhere. And learning to do that, however you call that, is a never-ending journey and we're all wrestling with it, but it's incredibly important in modern times. And if there's any gift that Zanskar gave me, it was an understanding that I could control that spotlight. And by controlling it, by placing that spotlight of attention on my children, on things that mattered and other things in my life community, it led to a much deeper and more satisfying way of being on a daily basis. And that newfound awareness, that blue sky, gave him something else too. Bodhi had been diagnosed with autism several years prior to the trip. It was something that Bruce always struggled with. It was hard. He didn't know how to help him, to reach him. He didn't know if he was doing enough, if he was being a good enough father. But gradually, as he slowed down and learned to control that spotlight of attention, to dissolve into the world rather than let the world pull him away, something shifted. One of the things that I came to see was the incredible parallels between autism and Buddhism and this, uh, I suppose, abhorrence of distraction, the clarity of what they wanted to focus on. Bodhi was as happy as I've ever seen him at that point. He started to flourish in a way I hadn't anticipated or ever glimpsed before. And there was a night in particular, the 
person meteor shower was going on and we're at 12,000 feet and the sky's absolutely crystal clear. And I said to Bodhi, you want to do we want to just sleep on the, the roof? It's a flat roof. And Bodhi typically says no to everything. He's like, oh, I'd love to, which like that enthusiasm was uh, unusual. And so it was a kind of father-son thing. We went out there, it's cold, we're in our sleeping bags and, and you know, there's bats flying around and the sh- then the stars start to come out. Bodhi's a big fan of astronomy and, and he's just absolutely beside himself. And we read a book and turn the headlamp out and we're kind of cuddled in there beside each other and we've got a yak hair blanket over us. And I think he's asleep. All of a sudden he just very quietly says, dad, this, this is gonna be the best night of my whole life. And, you know, what better feeling could a father ever have? But that little moment encapsulated the growth Bodhi saw on the journey. But like the beautiful colored sand mandalas, their time at the monastery was nearing its end. In his book, Bruce writes, shale clouds drifted across a lavender sky. The icy summits rising above flamed orange like torches. It was our final day at the monastery, and I sat outside the hobbit door, cradling the moment, knowing it would never come again. For three months, I'd watched the great rivers shifting colors from tortoiseshell green to slate gray, turquoise, mocha, and now silver. Running parallel to their banks was a dirt track, twisting and whirling like a piece of yarn that has been pulled taut and then released. This was the route we would follow tomorrow towards another world. Something I've been thinking about in the years since this journey is going on an expedition or some type of travel with with your family. It adds a point of focus. The closest analogy I can draw is a deep, deep pool of water and it deepens the more time you spend with your children and allows the little waves that pass to somehow be minimized and scaled to the depth of what you're sharing and I'd had that experience on earlier trips with my boys and then I would feel that pool shallow and become more choppy and so more than anything I think what we go back to doing is trying to refill that well we keep doing whether it might not be a six-month trip in the summer but we go on a sea kayak expedition on the coast of Vancouver Island or we you know rent a little cabin that's boat access and we just go there and spend the last summer we spent the whole summer on it a little island at the end of a lake with just us and the bears and the salmon. And that seems to deepen those waters and allow us the chance to connect. And I, you know, my boys are entering that age where they're gonna get phones soon. And so we'll continue navigating those challenges individually as we do as a society. And so I think people wonder, did, did you get an answer? Like, you know, did going to the Himalayas just provide you with this clarity that none of it's a problem anymore? And no, it didn't. But it gave me the sense that there are answers and it gave me the confidence that I can wrestle my way through these challenges. There's a quote which opens the book by the writer Michael Harris, which says, as we embrace technology's gifts, we usually fail to consider what they ask from us in return. The subtle, hardly noticeable payments we make in exchange for their marvelous service. We can't run away from technology and phones and endless scrolling. There will be Cheerios moments for us all, and there still is for Bruce too. But he's aware of it now, and that perhaps is the greatest gift Lama Wangal and the monks of Karsha Gompa gave him. 
Before leaving, he talked of drifting through life with his consciousness untethered in the clouds and noise of the valley floor. But above him, above all of us, always, is the blue sky. And if we can connect with that, we can perhaps connect with what is important to us too and shine the light of our attention, that rarest of gifts, towards it. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for sharing this beautiful story with us today. There is so much more in the book than we could cover, and I really encourage you to go and check it out. It's called Blue Sky Kingdom. Bruce is a beautiful writer, as you heard, and there is lots of amazing wisdom within that book too, which I think you're gonna get a lot out of. Go out and grab that at your local bookstore. You won't be disappointed. You can also head over to brucekirkby.com to find out more about all of his books, and you can find him on Instagram too, at Bruce Kirkby. I'd also like to remind you to check out that new show of mine, Hidden Trails of Oregon. It's a three-part series, totally immersive, recorded on location in surround sound with a ton of crazy adventures. The link is in the show notes, so go there right now. Literally, go there right now, subscribe to the show, and check it out the next time that you're looking for some adventure and escape. I think you're going to like it. So thank you so much for listening, guys. And don't forget to share the show with your friends. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast. And if you can, become a patron of the show to help us to continue to bring these stories to you. You can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash Armchair Explorer Podcast. The link's in the show notes too, as always. So until next time, keep taking the long road, keep embracing the unfamiliar and keep your eyes on that clear blue sky even when it's out of sight and high above the rain. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This episode was produced by Armchair Productions. Find our other shows at armchair-productions.com. Jenny Allison co-produced the show with me and Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. I'm Aaron Miller and thanks for listening.